Well, friends, once again, I've been reminded in good Ecclesiastes fashion of my mortality and my uh, ability to lose my health real fast. You can tell by my voice a little bit. This was actually not brought on by allergies or sickness or anything like that, but uh, brought on by a, uh, a weekend full of my kids' basketball games. So I apologize for my voice in advance. Uh, because when there's a weekend of basketball games, there's a lot of yelling that, that goes on, a lot of it done by, by me, uh, and that is especially the case if I think the referees are making some calls that are a little bit questionable. So uh, just the state of my voice ought to tell you how those games went this weekend with regard to the refs. There, there are certain other moments in life, certain other places in life that remind us of our mortality, as we talked about in the book of Ecclesiastes last week. One of my favorite places in the world, I think, that, I've, that I have been to, I've I've not been everywhere in the world. I've been to a few places, though. And one of my favorite places uh, in the entire world, I think, uh, it's got to be top three, is uh, in the city of London, England, and it is Westminster Abbey. I don't know if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey. It's the, it's the cathedral that sits in the, in the center of the, the city. Uh, and in Westminster Abbey are uh, buried the remains of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of some of the most important people in British history. So uh, uh, the, the kings and queens of England that ruled throughout the centuries are buried uh, or entombed in Westminster Abbey. And, and it's a place that is just absolutely mind-blowing when you walk into it. It's, it's enormous for one thing. There are choirs that are singing. And as you, as you make your way around uh, Westminster Abbey, there are just all these surprises that, that pop up everywhere as you read the inscriptions on the tombs or even, even look down at your feet. I mean, as you, as you sort of make your way into the visitor entrance and pay your 32 bucks to get into Westminster Abbey and, and see it all, as you kind of round the corner and begin the tour, you, you find that you're walking right over the grave of Charles Darwin, for instance. You're like, whoa, hold on, survival of the fittest, I guess. Over here, across the way, like directly opposite of Charles Darwin, is the grave of C.S. Lewis, and you could walk across him if you wanted to also. I sort of like, did like this and walked around C.S. Lewis, walked right over the top of Charles Darwin. <laughs> and then you've got the kings, right? So my, when my family and I were there uh, uh, almost two years ago now, um, we had uh, uh, watched as we were up in Scotland, driving around Scotland, we let my sons watch Braveheart. Because we're in Scotland, and what are you going to do except watch Braveheart? I'm sorry if you have Scottish heritage and you're going to tell me the history's all wrong. But, but we watched Braveheart. And so when we went to Westminster Abbey, I think for the, for the second time in our trip, you, you sort of round a corner and look up a little bit, and, and there's the, the tomb of Richard the Longshanks just right there in front of you. And so I'm telling the kids, look, guys, it's Richard the Longshanks, and it's just a box. It's incredible. Over here in one of the... Uh, the the uh, uh, chapels of the of the cathedral or whatever you, you call them, you've got these tombs of these dueling sister queens that didn't like each other very much. And so when one of them was was buried with this elaborate tomb, there's another queen who had herself buried exactly facing it, but with an even more elaborate tomb. There were two kings that were warring against one another. One of them was buried in this relatively. Uh, uh, not all that glorious, but still pretty impressive tomb. And so when the other king died, he instructed that his body be buried right on top of his rival king with this massive monument to his own glory. Well, there's one place in, the, in, in Westminster Abbey where you can sort of go behind most of everything else. And you're, I forget which king it is that you're, whose remains you're looking at back there, but there are two of them that are kind of facing one another, massive tombs with gold and colors and all the rest of this, this stuff. And you're walking in between these two kings, sort of looking at it, and there's a stone about this big. 
that's in the ground. It's the only thing that's going on there. And as you're looking up at this tomb, I, you know, I'm kind of looking around and I look down and I, I see this stone in the, in the pavement. It's clearly setting something apart. And I can tell that it says something. But I can't tell what it says because over the centuries, the letters of that stone have, have been rubbed out by people's feet going over the top of it. And so, you know, I kind of look at it real close and get, get closer to it and put my hand down and, 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 you know, rub whatever dust is on it off of it. And it dawns on me all of a sudden that the letters that have been rubbed out of that stone spell out King James the first. Like the King James of the King James Bible, one of the most famous kings in all the history of England. And the only thing that marks him is a stone with the letters rubbed out. King James the first. That's all that's left of him. That's all you see. We're going to be continuing our study of the book of Ecclesiastes this morning and asking the question, look, if death comes for us all, if my end is to wind up in a grave, just like King James I wound up, wound up in a grave, if my end is that someday the letters on my granite tombstone are going to be washed out just like the letters of King James I's name, then what's the point of it all? And how do you live well in a world, in a life that ends like that? Take a Bible, if you will, and turn over to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be looking at two chapters plus a little bit this morning of the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you want to use one of these Red Pew Bibles in front of you, uh, you're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, that's the one I use. And uh, you'll be able to find Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning on page 554. Uh, just to give you a running start again on this book, in case you missed some of uh, what we said last week, we're not exactly sure when the book of Ecclesiastes was written, but it was certainly several hundred years at least before the birth of Jesus. Uh, it's one of a handful of Old Testament books, along with Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Job, that make up the category of Scripture we call wisdom literature. And with the exception of the Psalms, wisdom literature, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Job, they're not exactly prophetic in precisely the same way that the prophets of the Old Testament are prophetic. They're not even prophetic in the same way that, for instance, the law and the history books of the Old Testament are obviously prophetic. Mostly what these wisdom books are, are doing, Psalms is more prophetic, and as we, as we study that in the future, you'll see how it's, it's more directly prophetic. But for, for Proverbs, for Song of Solomon, for Job, for certainly Ecclesiastes, these wisdom books are mostly concerned with teaching their readers, like we saw last week, the art of living well in the world that God has created. The art of living well in the world that God's created. And that's the aim of Ecclesiastes too. So last week, we looked at the first two chapters of the book, which at first glance and at first reading, probably to you, if you're anything like me, seem pretty grim. I mean, it, the whole thing starts with this preacher. That's what the author of this calls himself, the, the preacher's declaration that all of life is, you remember what he says, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. He's not, he's not saying there that life is meaningless. If your Bible says meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, that's, a, that's just a mistranslation of the Hebrew word that he's using there. What he means by the word vanity is that life and everything that makes it up, all the details and circumstances of life, it's all a vapor, it's a mist, it's a tendril of smoke. Here one minute and gone the next, and, and therefore utterly incapable of providing the ultimate meaning and significance that we so often demand of it. And why? Why is it, why is it so utterly incapable of doing that? Because when all is said and done, the wise and the foolish, the rich and the poor, the high and the low, the kings and the paupers all end up dead. 
You may get an elaborate tomb. You may get an eternal flame. You may get a, a slab of stone in the ground. You may get nothing. But sooner or later, all our graves go unattended. All our names are eventually rubbed out. But here's the lesson of Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Once, once you grasp that, once you understand that the short years of this life are entirely and completely incapable of providing you with some kind of lasting significance, it, that realization doesn't actually kind of ironically drop you into a kind of nihilistic despair. It lets you, it frees you to stop squeezing and torturing life for something it was never designed to give in the first place and just enjoy it as the good gift from God that it is. Well, all that was the lesson of Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. Today, we're going to be looking at the next two chapters and a little bit in chapter 5. And what happens in these two chapters and a little bit is that the preacher continues to unfold that whole message. How do you live well in God's world? In God's world? How do you live well in this life? And his answer is that you've got to understand your place in this life. And that will help you to live well in the world God has created. It will help you use well these little years of life that God has given us. So look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading there at the very beginning in verse 1. The preacher writes here, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain? As the worker from his toil. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living, are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been 
and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me as an incredibly hard passage and for a little while, I can sort of track along with it pretty easily and kind of see what the, the preacher is doing. But at some point in the middle, I just kind of, I just kind of lose the thread, right? And, and, and I have a really hard time picking it up again until we come to one of those little nuggets that makes sense to me as a proverb, and then I can sort of re-engage it. But, but it's, it's a difficult passage. It's, it's hard to see the line of thought. It leaves you wondering what the point is. It leaves you wonder what the preacher is, is saying or if it's just this grab bag of stuff that he's thrown in there. But... But that's the thing sometimes about wisdom literature, and it's certainly the thing about Ecclesiastes. It's just kind of notoriously difficult, and this passage in particular is a little bit difficult. And the Hebrew that lies behind some of these paragraphs and some of these words is difficult to translate at points. The preacher's line of thought is sometimes difficult to follow, so you really kind of have to do some work to understand it. And, and, and the reason I say all this is because if you read a passage like this out of the Bible and you think, oh my goodness, what's going on? I don't want you to feel like you're alone because I feel the same way and I still kind of feel that way even having studied it. Remember we talked last week about the fact that part of the way the preacher teaches the points that he wants to teach is, is to do it even through the form of his words in his book. He wants you to feel his point, as much as to understand it. And so when he's talking about this wrestling and trying to figure out how to live well in God's world, there's even some wrestling in the form of the book. There's confusion. There's some, some lurching back and forth in the way that he does it so that you feel the confusion of life and the difficulty of life. But I also think that despite that, if, if we will do a little work on it, 
If we'll look at it carefully and try to, try to trace out what's going on, I think what we'll see is that he's actually doing something. He's not just throwing a bunch of words together into confusion. He's doing something. He's giving us some profound advice, again, on how to live well in this life. And I think if you take it all together, if you boil it down into a couple of sentences, here's the main idea that the preacher is getting across to us. Ultimately, you are not in control of life. God is. So use your life to love others and listen to God. Ultimately, you are not in control of life. It's circumstances, it's details, it's events. God is. So what should you do? You should use your life to love others and listen to God. I want to unfold this passage from Ecclesiastes in three points. I think there are three truths that help us keep a right perspective on life and thus live it well and fully. Number one, here's number one, the providence of God. That's uh, sort of chapter 3, 1 through 15. The providence of God. That's what he's talking about through that whole, that whole section, 3, 1 to 15. Second point, the judgment of God. That would be chapter 3, 16 through 22. So the rest of chapter 3. Throughout the whole of chapter 4, finally, he talks about the importance of love. Chapter 4, 1 through 16. And then there's this sort of sum up conclusion at the end. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So that's the outline for the sermon. I think it's a, a good rough outline of these couple of chapters of Ecclesiastes, the providence of God, the judgment of God, the importance of love. And I think what the teacher is trying to get across to us is that if we will embrace all three of those, if we will understand them and get them deep down in our heart, if we'll see our lives in the bright light of these truths, it'll help us understand what's really important and live well in these short years that God has given us. So point number one, first thing that'll help us live well, have a bright perspective on this life is the providence of God. The providence of God in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3. The teacher begins chapter 3. You get a whole new section that's, that's starting here. He begins chapter 3 with this just exceedingly famous poem in verses 1 through 8. This has got to be one of the most uh, famous passages in all the Bible, and it is certainly one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. You, you hear this poem read at funerals, you hear it read in church services, you hear it read at weddings. Sometimes it gets used all the time. In 1965, the birds put it into a song and for some reason stuck the words turn, turn, turn in between each one of the phrases. Nobody's quite sure why. It's easily one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. And it's, it, it, you can see why. I mean, if you read through this thing and kind of catch its rhythms and feel the, feel the cadence of what's going on, what the preacher has written here, it's beautiful in its simplicity. And yet it is also deeply profound. I mean, look at, look at verses 1 to 8. Just look at what the preacher is doing with this poem. What you've got here are these kind of alternating pairs of opposite human experiences, right? Each one of those pairs is a, is a, is a uh, a pulling together of two opposite extremes or two opposite experiences in the human life, birth and death, planting and plucking up, killing and healing, and on, on down the line. And as the preacher lays out these alternating experiences, his aim in the whole thing is sort of to grab everything that makes up the human life. It's not that he's just picking out a few details here and there and leaving the rest of it untouched. What he means to do, even in the structure of the poem, is grab the totality, the whole of life. So I don't know if you counted the different experiences that are listed out here, but there are 28 of them, and they are arranged into 14 pairs. 28 and, seven of or 28 and 14, of course, are multiples of seven, which, of course, in the Hebrew mind was a, a number that represented wholeness and totality. Now, it is not a mistake 
that the author structured it around 28 experiences grouped into 14 pairs. He wanted you to have in mind sevens because he's thinking about the totality of life, and he doesn't want you to think that these are just little random details. And his point, as he, as he sort of wraps his arm around all the experiences and circumstances of life, is his point is to say that, look, in the course of life, however many years the Lord gives you, there is a time for all of these things. As the years of your life roll on, you're going to experience at one time or another everything that's mentioned here. You've already experienced birth. You're one day going to experience death. You'll experience times in your life of tearing down. You'll experience times of building up. You'll experience weeping and laughing and dancing and, and mourning. And the preacher wants you to feel those rhythms of life. He wants you to sort of look over the, the course of your life and see that for all of these things, there is a time that's going to come where each one of them will characterize your life. I, there's a few more things to notice, though, about this, I think, in the structure of it. And it, it really has to do with uh, uh, the teacher's ability to make us learn through feeling. For one thing, just notice through these pairs of experiences that there's no particular order to them. Did you notice that? I mean, a lot of times you can, you can go into long lists in the Bible, whether it's genealogies or lists of virtues or lists of vices, and they're often categorized, right? You've got this kind of virtue here, and then this kind of virtue, and then this kind of virtue, all kind of, kind of packaged up and wrapped up with a bow. There's nothing quite like that here. The only, the only thing that sort of organizes this whole thing is the, is the rhythmic movement between opposites. There's this, and then there's this. There's a time for this and a, and a time for this. As you read through this list, though, there's no particular way of knowing what's coming next, there's no categories, there's no breakdowns, there's no, there's no particular logical progression that's, that's going on. You just get the sense that you're just along for the ride. But the fact is, that's exactly part of what the preacher wants you to feel and therefore learn. He wants you to not just look at the words and understand them with your eyes. He wants you to read this with your heart and learn from the feeling of what comes when, it, when, when, when you read it. The very unpredictability of these experiences in the poem mirrors the unpredictability of these experiences in our lives. In succession, what the preacher is telling us is that sadness is going to give way to joy, is going to give way to mourning, is going to give way to dancing, is going to give way to laughing, one thing after another. At one moment of our lives, we find ourselves in a time of tearing down, and then a minute later, we find ourselves in a time of building up. We look back over years or decades and we, we can see that, that this decade was a time of planting and this decade was a time of, of plucking up and there's no way to know what's coming. Notice too that in this poem, in the alternating pairs, there's not even a nice, easy, clean back and forth between good and bad. You notice that? It's not that you get good on the left and bad on the right or vice versa. It doesn't, it doesn't good, bad, good, bad. That would help us. That would make us feel that there's some structure to this thing, that life is predictable. First you get the good, then you get the bad, then you get the good again, then you get the bad. It would make us feel that we're a little bit in control, but he doesn't even give us that. And if you look in verse 4, for instance, what we think of as bad comes first, weeping and mourning. But down in verse 6, it's the opposite, right? The good, seeking and keeping rather than losing and casting away comes first. In most of these verses... If you think about it, it's not even clear which one is good and which one is bad. I mean, I mean which is good and which is bad? Planting or plucking up? Well, I guess it, it, it depends on what you're doing. Which one is good or bad? Is, is casting away stones good or bad? Or is 
gathering stones, good or bad? Well, I, I suppose it, it depends, right? I mean, if you're clearing a field so that you can, so that you can plant crops in it, then, then casting away stones is what you want to do. But if you're about to build a house, then gathering stones is the good thing. It just depends. And the preacher's whole point in organizing it this way or not organizing it in this way is that these experiences of life just come one after another, sometimes on top of each other, and they're not controllable or predictable, and they're not meant to be. And yet, at the same time, I want you to, I want you to notice, too, that for all that unpredictability and for all that uncontrollability, there's still a rhythm to these experiences, right? Over and over and over. There's a time for this and a time for this. A time for that and a time for that. A time for this and a time for that. Reminds us, doesn't it, of what we saw last week, that just like God has built rhythms into nature, so he's built rhythms into our lives. Now, exactly what those rhythms are going to bring is unclear and uncontrollable, but what we can be sure of is that there will be rhythm and movement in life, and where there is rhythm and movement, there will be change. And I think one of the most important parts one of the most important parts of growing in wisdom and learning to live well in God's world is to recognize that what is now in your life will not always be. Your circumstances are going to change. Now, as an intellectual matter, you might say, yes, of course I know that, but you realize how often we live as if our circumstances are not going to change, as if life is not this rhythm from one experience to another, but as if it's a straight line all the way through and everything is going to stay the same. I think much of our frustration and failure to live with the kind of faith and enjoyment God intends through the, through the rhythms of life is that we just fail to recognize and embrace the fact that life's going to change. It works out in all kinds of ways, right? I mean, think about it. If, if we don't like our circumstances... Our first assumption, almost always, if we're in a situation that we don't like, is to start out assuming that our circumstances are not going to change, that our life is just a straight line from here to eternity, and that everything that is now that we don't like is going to stay that way forever. And so what happens? We assume that, and then we start to despair and doubt God and assume that we're stuck forever in this one place that we don't like. I think that's especially a temptation for young people. I think young people sometimes hit the first stage of adulthood or the first circumstance of adulthood, the first rhythm or big movement of life in one direction, and they just think it's going to stay there and keep going down. Yeah, but talk to some people who have lived a few decades, and, and they'll tell you, it, it never happens that way. Life moves. There's a rhythm. You go from poverty to wealth and back to poverty, from sadness to happiness and back to sadness and then back to happiness again. You go from building up, and then you see it all torn down, and then you build again. And over the years and the decades, life moves in a rhythm from one experience to another, and it's not always the same. So, friend, whatever, whatever set of circumstances, whatever set of experiences you're in right now, don't despair. Don't think that you're always going to be in that spot. Instead, treat life, treat the rhythms of life, treat this particular rhythm of life. It's something to be grabbed onto and learned from. Learn what God wants you to learn. Enjoy in this season, even in this season that you may not like, enjoy what God has given you to enjoy. And just know that before long, that rhythm is going to change and circumstances are going to shift in another direction. And in all likelihood, there are going to be aspects of that shift that you like and aspects that you don't like. 
but don't assume it'll always be bad. I think it's another problem. It's, it's the mirror of assuming that bad circumstances are always going to stay the same because, because on the other hand, if we like our circumstances in a particular season of life, we tend to hold on to them, right? We tend to assume that those circumstances are going to last forever, and we tend to convince our own hearts that if these circumstances were to change, my life would be over. There wouldn't be anything worth living for. And so when our circumstances do change, when, when the rhythms of life take us in the other direction, it rocks our faith. It makes us question God's goodness because he's taken something from us that we have convinced ourselves we must have in order for life to be good. But friend, if you like where you are right now, if career is going well, if family's going well, if everybody in your life is healthy and happy, remember that God has told us that life has a rhythm to it. It changes. It moves. And joy gives way to mourning, and mourning gives way to happiness again. Here's the point. Whatever your circumstances are, whether you like them or not, they are going to change. You're not going to be where you are forever. If you fight that, it'll rock your faith. If you embrace it, you'll be better able to live each rhythm of life with trust that God hasn't abandoned you just because your circumstances have changed. Most of the time, when people read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this little poem, they, 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 they read or sing or whatever it is through verse 8, but they don't go on to verse 9. But, but look at verse 9. What gain, the preacher asks, has the worker from his, his toil? No, nobody ever reads that verse at the end of the, the poem, but it's critical. It follows right on the heels of that poem, and it's critical for seeing what the preacher is really saying in this section. He's asking the question, in all of this, in these rhythms of life, and the changing of circumstances, and the experiences that we're all going to have through life, what gain has the worker from his toil at the end of this? That's that old, you remember from last week, that economic word, gain. It means profit or surplus or whatever is left over at the end of the, uh, the business deal. Whatever's left over, and he's asking the question, at the end of all these rhythms and circumstances and emotions and all the rest of it, at the end of it, when they drop us into the ground, what's the surplus? What's the profit? What's left over? What is the gain from all of this when life gives way to death? That's the question he's been wrestling with through the whole book so far. What point is there in all of this? Well, he's already given kind of the first step of his answer to that question in, in chapters 1 and 2. And there, the answer was just a, a, sort, of, a sort of hard-headed nothing. What gain is there that, the, that, that, that lasts or that, that remains at the end of life? And his answer in chapters 1 and 2 was nothing. There is no profit. There's nothing left. It all gets washed away. All the names, whether you're a king or a pauper, get rubbed out. And he says, but that's exactly the point. In fact, that's exactly the insight when you recognize that you're not going to be able to squeeze life for some kind of significance that it was never meant to give. That's exactly what frees you up to be able to enjoy it for the gift that it is from God. That was his answer in chapters 1 and 2. Well, here in, in chapter 3, he's going to push his answer beyond that. He's going to look beyond the circumstances and details of, of life, and he's going to look into eternity. And draw some significance from there. Look at, look at verses uh, 10 through 13. Here's how he answers the question. What, what gain has the worker from his toil? How do, you, how do you get significance out of this thing? He says, I've seen the business 
that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You can see how he's pushing forward because in chapters 1 and 2, there, there is some insight in recognizing that you can't squeeze significance out of this, this life. Everything's going to return to dust, and so therefore, you, you might as well just eat, drink, and be married. There's some insight and helpful insight in that, but it doesn't go far enough. And I read an interview just this, this past week with, with Conan O'Brien, who had come to that understanding. He said, he said look, I went to the, to the grave of one of the most popular presidents in, in the 20th century, Calvin Coolidge, and it's overgrown with vines and nobody is there. He's the, he's the one that, that said, uh, in the long run, all of our graves go unattended. And he said, and therefore, I'm not worried about whether they cancel my show because of a, because of a small audience. I'm not worried about you know, what people say about me in my Wikipedia article at the end of my life. I'm, I'm free to just live my life because I know that, that whether it's me or Jay Leno or, or the president of the United States or the king of England, we're all going to sink into the ground. There was some insight in that. But at the end of that interview, you're still kind of left scratching your head a little bit and going, yeah, but, but that's it? I mean, if, if that's it, then let's just quit, right? Well, the, the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes recognizes that. He pulls the insight out of understanding that life is, is fleeting and ephemeral, but he then says, and yet there's something beyond it. It's not just this closed, naturalistic system that just, just falls into entropy. There's something beyond it. And he points us, therefore, to God. What he says there is that the one who is orchestrating all these details of life and all the rhythms of life has done it for a purpose. Do you see that? You can see it in verse 11, he's made everything beautiful in its time. He's, he's given it beauty. He's given it significance and meaning. And it's God who has done that, not just the events themselves. But even more, even more, look at the, the middle of verse 11. Because the teacher there says, also, God has put eternity into man's heart. You see what that's saying there? What that means is that for every human being, all of us who are made in the image of God, for every single one of us, God has put into our hearts an innate sense that all the little years and details of our lives are actually connected to and part of something greater, something that has its roots in eternity. But look at the second part of that. He's put eternity into man's heart, yet in such a way that man still cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. It's an amazing thing that he's saying there. God has put into your heart an innate sense that all the stuff of your life has a certain beauty to it. It has a certain pattern. It has a certain realness. And it's God who has put that there. And yet God has put that innate sense in you that it all connects to eternity in such a way that you can't get your head up far enough to see how it connects. And so you have a longing to see it, a longing to find meaning and significance, a longing to get your head up above the water far enough that you can see the tapestry, and yet you can't. You can't see the beginning from the end. You can't, you can't make out how all the threads of life, and not to mention just your life, but all the lives of the billions of people who have lived on the planet, you can't see how they all interconnect. All you can see is this one little patch of thread that you happen to be living in. Because you're in the tapestry, you're in time. And from your limited time-bound perspective, 
a whole lot of life isn't going to make sense. You're not going to see how that thread connects to the other one, even though that innate sense in your heart is going to want to with all its being. But he goes on, right? He goes on and, and, and says that God, however, is not like us in that sense. He's, he's not time-bound. He does see the beginning from the end. Look at, look at verses 14 and 15. He says there, I, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. There's some profound truths in this, right? I mean, what we do is, is temporary. It's going to be rubbed out like the letters of King James' name. But what God does lasts forever. It, it, it endures And what's more, do you see that the the preacher is saying here that unlike us, who can't get our heads up high enough to see the whole tapestry, God exists not in the tapestry, but outside of it. And so he sees the whole thing from beginning to end. He sees how it all fits together. He can tell the beginning from the end. That's what verse 15 is about, by the way. You can read verse 15, and it it sounds like just the, the preacher being hopeless again. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what's been driven away, right? It can just sound kind of like chapter 1, but it's not at all. What he means there is that to God, from God's eternal perspective, that which is already has been to him. It's not the present. It just is. That which will be in the future has already happened to him. It, it, it just, he's outside of time. It just exists. And then that last phrase, God seeks that which has been driven away. You can, you can translate that in a, in a couple of ways. It, it might mean that God is the one who superintends, that, that would be the word seeks, what hurries along. That means what has been driven away. So all the details of life that seem to us like they're hurrying along and they're a little bit out of control. To God, he superintends all of that. That might be what it means. It also might mean that that God seeks, he superintends what has been driven away from our perspective into the past, right? The events that have happened to us that are in the past, they're driven away from us. We have no access to them. But God sees it all at once, the present, the past, and the future. He's able to seek, to call up, to find that which has gone away. It's accessible to him. Either way, though, Whichever way you translate that little phrase, the point is that even if life's tapestry of all the details and all the rest of it are, are beyond our grasp and beyond our control, it's not beyond God's control. He's providentially in control of it all. If you look at verse 12 then, that's exactly the truth and perspective that allow us to ride the rhythms of life with joy and faith. I mean, yes, there's going to be weeping and laughter. There are going to be tears and there's going to be joy. But the question for you, friend, is what's underneath all those experiences? As the experiences of life come and as the rhythms of life go back and forth, what's underneath them? Nothing. I mean, is the only thing that's underneath the experiences of life for you, the ups and the downs, is just this dark abyss of hopelessness that all of this is really just uncontrolled and a big accident and chaotic and that there's no purpose to it? Because in that case, the ups and downs of life are going to drive you along like the waves of the sea. Or on the other hand, for you, is there underneath the ups and downs of life a bedrock of faith? That God sees the whole picture and is working it out for good. 
Look, faith, having faith in God doesn't take away the ups and downs of life. They're still there. The rhythms still happen. The ups still cause joy and the downs still cause pain. But if you've got the bedrock of faith, the ups and downs are less like the crashing waves of some bottomless sea than they are like the the splash of raindrops on granite. Friend, learn to trust and know that even if you can't see everything, God can. You understand that? And it'll be like ballast in your ship, a weight that holds it down and keeps it from being thrown to and fro by every wave that comes against you. So that's first, the providence of God. Number two, the judgment of God. The judgment of God. In verse 16, the, the preacher turns to a, a, a new topic, or it's kind of a subtopic. He's still thinking about how to live well in God's world, but his mind turns now to really the problem of evil. That's what he's thinking about. And the question that he asks is, look, I, I look around the world, I see the circumstances that make up the lives of human beings, and I see over and over and over again wickedness where there ought to be justice and righteousness. What do I do with that? And why, why should seeing all the wickedness and all the evil that exists where there ought to be justice and righteousness, why shouldn't that just lead me to throw up my hands in despair? It's a good question. It's an honest question. Because if you don't shut your eyes and you look around actually at the way the world operates and runs, the evil that makes up the experience of human beings can seem overwhelming. If you dwell on it for very long at all, it, just, it, it, just, it really will threaten to just overwhelm and swallow up everything. I mean, how do, you, how do you look clear-eyed into the face of human history and not just get crushed in spirit by the, the waves of hatred and violence and racism and injustice and blood that roll through human history? How do you look clear-eyed into the face of the fact that more than 17,000 babies were killed in the United States just this last week and not get swallowed up and drowned by that thought? You look at the newspapers, you look at social media, you look at the news, and the world's headlines are just a parade of human beings hating and killing each other and then turning around and inventing new ways to hate and kill each other. And if we can't come up with some good reason to hate and kill each other, we just make one up. And how do you not get swallowed and crushed by that? That's the question he's asking. Well, well he gives two answers here in these verses. The first one comes there in verse 17. And it is to remind us that in the face of all the evil, in spite of all the injustice, in spite of all the wickedness, God is seeing it all and will one day set it right. One day, on a date certain, he will bring every evil deed to judgment. The fact is, if you read the Bible, it's that, it's that certainty of judgment. It's, it's the fact that there is a date certain sometime in the future when God will set everything right. 100%. It's that certainty of judgment that's sustained God's people since the beginning of time as they've lived and looked at the world. And it was that certainty that sustained Abraham when he said, far be it from you, O God, to, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so the righteous fare just like the wicked do. Far be that from you. I know that the judge of all the earth will do right. He couldn't see how justice was going to work, but he knew that God would ultimately do what was right. He was sure of that. He had a certainty of judgment. It's a certainty of judgment that sustained the psalmist 
when the psalmist was, was wrestling with why the wicked seem to prosper. Why do they seem to be the ones with the power? Why do the wicked seem to be the ones with the riches? He says in Psalm 73, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. It's a certainty of judgment that's sustained Christian martyrs when they've been tortured and beheaded and crucified for their faith in Jesus. In Revelation, they cried out from under the altar, how long, O Lord, before you will judge and avenge our blood? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the judgment should come. See, for, for centuries and millennia, the people of God had been sustained in a fallen, evil, wicked world by the certainty of judgment, the promise of God that he will judge. The trouble, of course, is that we have a tendency to desire and sometimes even to demand judgment and vindication right now. And if we get really proud about it, we even begin to question whether God's delay in the face of all the evil that we see in the world somehow makes him complicit in it. Or at least whether the amount of evil that he's allowed in the world just swamps any imaginable good that he might ultimately promise to bring out of it. But friend, if you have a tendency to ask those kinds of questions of God, to demand judgment now, to declare to the universe that there's no way he could ever bring good out of this or enough good to make it worth it, but friend, before you call God to account in that way, I think it's critical for us as human beings to remember our place. I mean, who are we, after all, as human beings, to demand that God save us now from these catastrophic results of our own rebellion against him? It's not God who sinned. It's not God who threw the world into fallenness and chaos. We are the ones, after all, who sinned. All the evil in the world, all the hatred and the death that we throw at one another didn't just happen to us by accident. It erupted from our own hearts, from our decision to declare independence from God. We cut ourselves off from the source of all life and joy in the universe and just make a go of it on our own. We did this to ourselves. And now we'd look up into heaven and say, God, you now have a responsibility to get us out of it. Now. It's important to remember our place. I think it's important, too, before we call God to account, to recognize that there was no obligation on him to bring any good out of our rebellion at all. And yet, in spite of all of it, God promises over and over again in the Bible that despite our rebellion, despite our sin, despite its catastrophic consequences, he promises us that he will, in fact, take all of this and work it together ultimately for good. Romans chapter 8. How's he going to do that? I, I have no idea. I can't look at the world. I can't look at 17,000 abortions in a week, for 46 years, and say, oh, it'll be easy for God to bring good out of that. I can't, I can't do it, but, but I've learned to recognize as I've made it my way through, through some years of life, I've learned to recognize that I am finite, and God is infinite. And if that's true, 
if my little brain is finite and God's brain is, is infinitely large, then I just have to start with the assumption that there are certain things that will fit into God's mind that just will not fit into mine. And so my place is not to demand answers, but to trust him. To take his promises is true and trust him. That's, that's one answer that's given here. God is going to judge. He's going to make it all right. You may not be able to see how, but, but he's promised that he's going to. That's one answer that this, the teacher gives. In 18 to 21, though, he gives another answer, too. He gives, one, he gives the, the answer that God is going to judge. That's one answer to his problem of evil. But, but he also plays around with, with one purpose for which God allowed wickedness to persist in the world. One, one, one purpose that God had in allowing evil to persist in the world, and that is, the, the, the preacher says, to teach human beings that we are, in fact, beasts. That we are, in fact, creatures. Now, now that's, that's not to say, and the preacher is not saying, that we are nothing but beasts, right? I mean, that would, that would contradict the whole, the whole Bible that says we're made in God's image, and we're made just a little bit lower than the angels, and and all the rest. All of those things are true, and the preacher knows that they're true. But he also knows that it's true that we're not glorious angels. We're not immortals who are just going to you know, live forever, unaffected by anything. We are, in fact, beasts, created beings. And through those verses, he says that our bodies ultimately wind up in the same place as the beasts, in the ground, return to dust. Do you see what he's doing there with that? It's a rhetorical strategy, but do you see what he's doing? He's saying, he's trying to convince you that there is some purpose for evil persisting in the world. Evil in the world by design humbles us as a human race. It teaches us who we really are and who we really are not. I mean, think about it. The, the last time human beings lived in, in a perfect world, a world without sin, a world without evil, a world without wickedness, what did we do? We rebelled against God because we thought we deserved to be like him. And so our own catastrophic failure as human beings through the centuries and through the years over and over and over again teaches us our proper station. We are dust. We are not God. And ultimately we will return to dust. But the preacher also wants you to know that we're not just Dust. Look at verse 21. 21. It's a difficult verse. He says there, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now, if you're using the ESV like, like I just read, the ESV makes that into a question about whether the spirit of man goes up and the spirit of the beast goes down. Well, it's, it's not a question, actually. I think the ESV gets it wrong. And I'll give you a couple of reasons for why I think that. First of all, the preacher is not under any confusion about whether the spirits of men go up to God and the spirits of the beast down. You can look at chapter 12, verse 7, because he affirms it later. The spirit of man, when he dies, goes back to God. He's not under, he's not under any confusion about that. Besides that, he's just finished talking in the verses right up above that about a final coming judgment for human beings. So he's not in any confusion about whether the spirits of man go up and the spirits of the beasts go down. It's a mistranslation anyway. And if you're using the ESV, there is no word weather. These are just, these are just flat, absolute participles. Those of you who are Hebrew scholars can help me out with this later and explain it to me better than I understand now. But there's no weather. 
there's just a participle. And so the verse ought to say, who knows? In other words, who considers? And his answer is nobody. Not, not enough people consider the fact that the spirit of man, which goes upward, and the spirit of the beast, which goes down. That's, that's his point. Did you catch it? Uh, let me read it again as it should be. Who considers the spirit of man, which goes upward, and the spirit of the beast, which goes down? That's what it should say. He wants us to understand that we are beasts, we are created beings, but we are not mere beasts. There is something more about us. Unlike your dog, unlike your parrot, unlike your gerbil, eternity is planted in your heart, and so you long for something more. And friend, it's the story of the Bible carries on, it becomes real clear how we become connected to the eternal. It's by being united to him who is eternal. By putting our trust and our faith in the second person of the Trinity who became flesh, the word of God, the logos of God, who became man so that we might be raised to the heavens, so that our heads finally, our eyes finally might get up out of the tapestry of time and be able to see the whole thing. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And the question is whether you'll simply sink into the sands of time and history and be gone or whether you'll be united to the one who is eternal. Here's point number three, more briefly, the importance of love. The importance of love. That's, that's really, I think, the whole point of the whole of chapter 4. He's going to be talking about the importance of love. He's on the same topic as he begins chapter 4. It's how to live well in God's world. And so now he turns to another bit of wisdom that, that helps us do that. And that little bit of wisdom is to recognize the importance of loving and caring for other people. Let's step through it real fast. In verses 1 to 3... The preacher zeroes in on the human tendency we all, we all have not to love each other, but rather the opposite of love, to oppress one another. And over the next couple of verses, he shows the fruit of it, right? When that's what marks human beings, when it's oppression and not love that marks humans, it, there's nothing but misery, even to the point that in a world dominated by that kind of hatred and evil and wickedness and oppression, it's better to be dead or even never to have lived. That's where we as human beings naturally take ourselves. In 4 to 7, though, he starts to... He starts to then lay out some of the things that cause us to turn inward in selfishness. And he lays out in four through seven, four different pitfalls that cause us to be selfish. Number in verse four, you see there's envy. I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. We don't, we don't toil and work for the good of others. We do it because we want to be like somebody else. We want to be honored and glorified like someone else. Motivated by envy, that's one thing that turns us inward. Another thing, ironically, is laziness. In verse 5, the fool folds his hands. He means, means like fold your hands to, to rest. That's what that means. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh, right? In other words, his, his laziness is the kind of selfishness that turns inward and just devours the soul because it's all about, about him. In verse 6, he talks about the pitfall of what you might call two-handed striving. See what he says there? Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. You, you see the, the image there, right? It's, it's toiling with everything you are, both hands on glory, both hands on trying to squeeze life for everything it's worth. 
Notice what he says there. It's, it's just one handful of quietness. He's not, he's not saying don't work, don't strive. He's saying, no, strive with one hand and have quietness and joy and peace and enjoyment in the other. Verse 7, you got the story of a man who, who had it all but looked around and had nobody to share what he had with. He's got no son. He's got no daughter. Just selfishness. The fruit of his toil that nobody to enjoy it with. You know, if you think about it, no child, when she thinks back on it, ever says that she hated her father because he dropped her off at school every day in a car that wasn't a Mercedes Benz and that she, she really wishes he would have spent less time with her and more time making money. No daughter ever says that, but, but many children, many children grow up being bitter that dad had everything except time for her. 9 through 12, I think, brings this, brings this point home. You can, you can read it there, but the point, is, the point is that part of what it means to live well in this world, to, to use the short years of your life well, is to enjoy this life in the friendship and company of others. And if you're treating this life as something that needs to be tortured and squeezed for glory and significance for you that it was never designed to give, then friend, you're, you're engaged in an inherently lonely business. Two-handed toil, as the preacher puts it. But if you recognize what life really is, that it's a gift from God, and if you share it with others, you'll live with a newfound joy that maybe you never thought was possible. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 7, there's a, there's a kind of final summing up of this, this portion. And, and you can see, he's got a lot of words there, but you can see what he's saying. If you look, if you look especially at verses 1 to 3, and then on into to 4 through 7, also what he's saying is, look, look, it's not your words finally that are important. It's not the things that you say to God that are ultimately important. What you need to do instead is, is humble yourself and recognize who you are and listen to God. Recognize what this life is about and what it's not about. Recognize your place in it and the places that you are not. Trust God. Trust Scripture to sum up your life and determine its place in the tapestry of time. You don't have to grasp to find a place for it yourself. That, he says, to listen to God and submit to him and enjoy the life that he's given in the company of others. That is the art of living well in God's world. Let's pray.